welcome to the Atem podcast. My name is Dorota Buskela and this is the place to be to catch up on what you missed at the 2021 edition of the online 24 hours of Atem. So, for this 22nd episode, we will cover better UHD TV experience. Let's start the engines. Hello again, everyone. So uh, welcome to uh, the two last sessions uh, of the 24 hours of ATEM. Uh, we will finish with now a different subject. So we talked about uh, video in the cloud. We talked about uh, how to make streaming successful. Uh, this session will be now about really a content experience. Uh, we all know our, uh, where our industry is and content is king, but really the experience, the visual, the audio experience that we can create to the end user uh, creates a difference uh, when it comes to engage with the audience, when it comes to uh, keep uh, the subscription, when it comes to uh, create an atmosphere. And so I'm glad to be uh, the moderator today uh, with uh, world-famous technologies and discuss UHD and immersive audio experiences. So uh, we have uh, three uh, CTOs, three technologists, uh, Adrian Mortaza from, uh, from one of our institutes. Hello, Adrian. Hello, Remy. Hello, everyone. We thank you for being with us to discuss about MPEG-H and uh, the immersivity of the sound experience. We have Andrew Cotton from the BBC. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Remy, and hello to everybody else on the call. So Andrew is principal technologist at the BBC. Lastly, uh, Mikael from ATEM, uh, chief technology officer. Hello, Mikael. Hello, Remy. So uh, thank you again for uh, you three for being here. Uh, just as a reminder, uh, the QA session is on. You can ask as many questions as you want. The rest is muted, but please don't be shy. Uh, we want to have an interactive session. We are here to discuss about immersive sound and next-gen experience. So please uh, raise your voice and we'll be happy to answer any question that you have. Andrew, Adrian, Mikael, now the floor is yours. Okay, so we'll give the floor to Adrian to start with MPEGH. So Adrian, you have now the control of the presentation. Okay, thank you very much, Mikael. Thank you, Remy. It's a great pleasure to, to be here. And um, I'm just trying, okay, everything works. Uh, yes, it's... Uh, it's a very interesting webinar we have today, a lot of information to, to talk about, so I will try to, to dive in directly. So I will focus on the audio side and let the video to, to the video experts that will come after, so Andrew and Mikhail. Um, and of course, uh, we were all aware already of, uh, of the new capabilities of next generation audio and uh, this is already a reality used in, in services today. But in a, in a nutshell, what, uh, what this means actually for the consumer, on one hand, of course, immersive sound, that's the well-known uh, terminology. It's for, for having sound coming from all the directions at home. So you always feel that you are part of the event uh, going beyond the classic uh, stereo and 5.1. But that's just a, a small part of the, the experience. The additional component, extremely important for next generation audio, is the interactivity and personalization. With this, the user is actually part of the experience. So you can engage with the content, not only just listening to, to what the producer has prepared, but you can go beyond and, uh, for example, enhance the dialogue, um, uh, change between different versions of the content, uh, you know, personalize it to your own taste with the, the caveat that, of course, the broadcaster still has full control over all these features. So if you don't want to allow the viewers to do something because it might be wrong, then you can control it in production. And nevertheless, it's important to deliver a consistent experience across all devices 
and the MBAGH system, it comes with built-in uh, technologies for uh, down mixing and rendering to all various setups, um, binaural rendering for headphones, adaptation to all the devices, basically on the go, mobile and, and so on. Um, besides personalization, accessibility, it's extremely important, especially in our days when um, there is a more and more need for, uh, for supporting the visually impaired and hearing impaired audience. And that's why the MPEG-H audio systems, it comes with built-in solutions for, um, for multiple languages. So the user can easily change the language of the content and still preserving the, the overall experience. You can still have immersive sound and uh, your preferred language. You can enhance the dialogue um, to, to, for better intelligibility, or you can enhance the audio description in, in the same manner for, for better intelligibility. And going beyond that, the, you know, the level is not always everything for intelligibility. The spatial separation of uh, dialogues, it helps uh, and it improves significantly the intelligibility. And what you see here, it's one very simple uh, illustration of what this uh, such a slider means in, a, in an application. So what you see here, this is a user interface for an iOS mobile phone uh, running an MPEG-H uh, feature and by moving the audio description to the rear you can have uh, clearly spatial separation between dialogue and audio description and the people needing the audio description may sit next to to the speaker the rear speaker and just listen to that one and let the rest of the family focus on the on the main dialogue and of course uh, all these features that I, I very, very quickly mentioned uh, are important and are uh, enhancing the services, but these are mainly for new services. So that uh, all this can be enabled with object-based audio. But of course, we have a lot of legacy material, which is mainly stereo. And as a broadcaster or service provider, you would like to have the same capabilities for, for all of your contents. And that's why, uh, Fraunhofer, we have developed uh, a new technology uh, called Dialog Plus, and we have worked here very closely with uh, broadcasters across Europe. So uh, this actually started way, uh, I think, almost 10 years ago with BBC when we uh, run a Wimbledon trial. And most recently with the German broadcasters, there is a close collaboration for, uh, for deploying and testing this technology. And this can be used not only with MPEG-H audio. That's the good thing that you can enable it even with AAC or HEAC today in, in your services. And just to mention that uh, uh, VDR has already started to, to test this on uh, their linear DV, DVB transmission program. And in the same time, uh, BR has enabled Dialog Plus in their uh, HVB-TV offering. So there have been several documentaries already available in the in the BR MediaTek, and I think uh, more will be available until April already. So uh, I will now want uh, try to focus a bit on the standardization status, and uh, I will go through a few case studies and share a bit of our experience uh, gained during during all this broadcast with MPEG-H. When it comes to the standardization landscape, uh, MPEG-H has already, let's say, become the de facto standard for, for next generation audio. So it is widely adopted by all major broadcast and streaming applications. So it is part of ATSC 3.0. Uh, it is included in the DVB specification for audio and video coding. It was adopted by SBTVD in Brazil for ISDB-T broadcast. And uh, many other specifications. I will not. I will not go into all the details. But of course, the specification work was finalized a few years ago. And looking a bit into the field, uh, broadcast started in South Korea since 2017. So with ATSC 3.0 and using only MPEG-H audio as the audio system for for their services. And I received I received several times questions about how these features are used in South Korea. So I prepared a couple of pictures here, which uh, 
Oh, there are pictures of TV sets, and these are broadcast services for sports events, um, a song contest, or some educational programs. And you see this is an LG TV set where the interactivity options of MPEG-H are used differently. So you can have uh, languages, you can have a stadium feed without any commentator, or specialized on song contest with a vocal band, uh, or the live feed, and so on. So all of these are, are used in practice, and in South Korea this is a, a regular service. But of course there are many others uh, where, especially for streaming, where the adoption is much faster. And I will briefly mention, uh, let's say, the latest events that have been uh, broadcasted in MPEG Audio in Europe. Uh, here we have uh, partnered very closely with, uh, with ATEM. So they have uh, supported us, of course, with uh, the integration and all the optimization work done in the in the Titan Live Encoder that it's used for uh, for all these events. And um, on the metadata side, that I will talk a bit later, Younger and Linear Acoustic they they have supported us, and of course, until now Sennheiser was a a great solution for experiencing the to, to the consumer end the sound immersive sound. Um, one uh, very important event was already in 2019, where together with ATEM and France Television, uh, we have enabled MPEG audio on uh, terrestrial broadcast and satellite in the same time. And here you see a couple of pictures from the broadcast center. Um, this was actually a partially remote production uh, in the sense that in uh, the MPEG audio authoring unit, so the one responsible for creating all the metadata, was integrated inside the France Television main UHD OB van. And here, all, the entire authoring was done in immersive sound plus one dialogue, enabling various interactivity options. Monitoring was done only in 5.1 inside the OB van. But the feed was then contributed via uh, fiber to, to the France Television Broadcast Center, where we have uh, installed a second authoring unit for monitoring purpose. So this is not really needed, but in practice, usually you, have, you want to have a second uh, check <laughs> to see if everything is right and it can be used for last minute corrections. And of course, the ad breaks were handled uh, in the broadcast center. And we had two, two uh, Titan Lives encoders running uh, in parallel. One was used for the terrestrial feed and satellite, and one was used for an HLS streaming in parallel. So we had HLS streaming, and we used uh, also an LG TV set for demonstration in, inside France Television. Um, I will now jump on the other side of the world in, in Brazil. I quickly mentioned that MPEG-H was adopted uh, in Brazil. Uh, they have started already in 2019 the so-called TV 2.5, where um, uh, existing broadcast system was enhanced with additional functionality with SLHDR on the video side and uh, HLG is also in the specification. And with um, MPEG-H audio on the, the audio side, you can enhance not only with immersive sound, but also with personalization capabilities. And already in 2019, during uh, Rock in Rio, we, we had the first broadcast with, uh, with MPEG-H audio conducted by, by Global. And I think we'll have a look later on to, to a bit more details of the technical setup of, um, of this event. But in parallel, so TV 2.5, it's happening now, it's, it's there. Uh, this is a, an extension of the broadcast system. The Brazilian forum, SBTVD forum, has started an activity to, and to specify the next generation, the so-called TV 3.0. And here we have uh, partnered up with, uh, with ATEM to jointly propose the MPEG-H audio system for the next generation TV 3.0 project. You see here a very little picture with all the requirements of, uh, of the TV 3.0 system, which are extremely challenging. So this is a very well-designed call for proposals. And uh, 
we we believe that today MPEG H audio is the only fully standardized solution for fulfilling the most challenging uh, requirements. So we we talk here about uh, live configuration changes going from a full immersive setup and interactive to a stereo ad and back to immersive, uh, preserving all the the settings of the user uh, without any audio loss, without any disruption in the user experience. So it's a really uh, high-end experience and uh, we are happy that together we can uh, demonstrate this. So there will be a phase two evaluation where we will demonstrate all these capabilities in live broadcast. And uh, just to summarize this project in Brazil, uh, you see here the, the transition from, from TV uh, 2.0 actually, which is using only AAC, to TV 2.5 that can simulcast AAC and MPEG-H and new devices would uh, decode MPEG-H while older devices would uh, decode the stereo AAC. And of course, uh, to a TV 3.0. And here we have already tested uh, this setup where uh, the Titan Live is capable to, to run all these services in parallel. So you, you can have a single production, a single MPEG-H authoring, uh, delivered to a, a TEMS a Titan encoder, which will basically generate all the necessary outputs for uh, AAC, TDT 2.0, 2.5, and 3.0, which uh, will switch from transport stream to an MMT uh, or dash route, or maybe a different format for uh, IP-based uh, solution. Um, a quick teaser, we have opened a new training center in, uh, in Sao Paulo. So we're happy to, we have announced this just yesterday and we are happy to receive all the visitors when this will be possible to, to uh, produce and experience MPEG-H audio. Um, now, before I uh, hand over back to Mikhail, I just want to briefly talk about metadata and uh, without going too much into details, uh, there is a solution for live broadcast, which is uh, called MPEG-H audio production format. And this is a reliable solution uh, running um, uh, in, an, in a way which is aligned to the video frame rate. So it enables broadcasters to always um, be able to change everything in live. And how this can be done? There are two units available, one from Junger and one from Linear Acoustic that can be used for altering languages, objects, DRC, uh, loudness, and, uh, and so on, and also monitor all these setups in, in live broadcast. For post-production, there is a free available altering suite, everything that you can do in live. Of course, you can do in, uh, in uh, post as well. You can alter new content or ingest existing material. So you can take an existing ADM production and uh, enhance that with personalization and export it for an MPEG-H uh, broadcast. So I would maybe stop here and thank you for, uh, for your attention. And uh, for any questions, don't hesitate to ask them now or contact us after the webinar. We're happy to, to answer. Mikhail? Yeah. <clears throat> so now, thank you, Adrian, for the presentation. Uh, I will give the floor to uh, to Andrew for the for the next presentation. I will try to mute us, Andrew. So I will uh, I will give you the 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 presentation. So I, let me do that right now, and then I will mute. Okay. Thank you very much indeed, Michael. That seems to have done something. Let me see if I can advance the. Slides, no. Ah, there we go. Okay, thank you very much indeed. So um, I'm going to talk about the Hybrid Log Gamma HDR solution. Um, I'm going to kick off with an introduction to HLG and I'm going to explain how it's been designed with domestic viewing environments in mind, as well as um, live HDR television production, and I'm going to touch on its um, compatibility with SDR displays because there are often quite a lot of questions around that. 
Um, and then I'm going to focus on live HDR production in particular and talk about a workflow that's evolved for live production and touch on the importance of choosing the right type of HDR to SDR format conversion. So I'm sure we don't really need any reminding of the live TV production chain, but essentially you have a camera, which is shown on the left of this diagram, and the job of the camera is to collect light on its sensor, and that linear light signal is converted to a non-linear signal through the camera's OETF, its optoelectronic transfer function. And then that non-linear signal, once it's passed through the broadcast infrastructure, goes to a display, and the job of the display is to pass the signal through an EOTF, an electro-optical transfer function, um, to generate a linear light signal to drive um, a display panel. Now, end-to-end, there's an opto-optical transfer function. The OETF and the EOTF are not the exact inverse of one another. And that's absolutely critical. And in fact, that is the most important aspect of any TV system. And the, the job of the opto-optical transfer function is to ensure that the image you see on the display looks subjectively similar to the scene in front of the camera. And that OOTF, the optical transfer function, has to change uh, to accommodate different brightness displays and different viewing environments, as both of those aspects change the adaptation state of the eye, which changes the way that we perceive tones. Um, now, usually, this end-to-end OOTF is a gamma law. And you might wonder how that is able to preserve the subjective appearance of screen, of, of, of images. A gamma law is effectively a power law. Well, that's quite easy to explain because with a gamma law, we're saying here that the displayed light on the screen is proportional to the scene light, the light falling on the camera sensor, raised to a power. Now, the eye sensitivity to light is approximately logarithmic. So if we turn, take then the logarithm of those two quantities, the displayed light and the scene light, you end up um, with the displayed light being proportional to, so the log of the displayed light being proportional to the log of the scene light. And with that direct proportionality, the linear relationship in log-log space that you can see on the diagram here, you can perhaps begin to understand how the pictures on the display can then, through this power law, um, be subjectively similar to the light in front of the camera. Now, what's absolutely critical is that you get the right level of gamma. If the gamma is too low for the OOTF, the pictures look washed out and a little bit over bright, as they do on the left here. If the gamma is too high, the pictures look a little bit too punchy and, and, and dark. And I'm sure many of you on the, on the, on the webinar have, have, have always understood that actually a brighter viewing environment requires a lower OOTF gamma. In fact, those results were established back in the 1940s. Um, and that's obvious when you think about it. Um, a low gamma effectively lifts detail out of the shadows, it makes shadow detail brighter, which means it's going to be more visible in a brighter viewing environment. Um, although we'd understood those basic principles, it hadn't really been accurately measured. Um, so we conducted three sets of subjective tests. It was quite a difficult experiment and it took us three goes to get a reliable set of results, which then allowed us to establish exactly how the gamma, the OTF gamma has to change with viewing in environment. And by that, we mean the brightness of the surround um, around the screen. And the equation for that is av available in ITU report BT2390, which is shown on the screen here. And that function actually is now implemented in several consumer TVs. What we didn't know, and actually came as quite a surprise, is that Brighter displays require a higher gamma. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, it had always been thought that a brighter display was more like nature and would require a lower OOTF gamma. 
But in fact, we were, we were giving a demonstration back in 2014 um, at IRT's labs in, in Munich, and we had a, a, a bright digital signage display, a 5,000 nit um, display intended to be used in shopping centers, and we'd adapted that to HLG, but with just a fixed gamma. And the mid-tones were, were way too bright. And we'd measured the display and measured our compensation to turn it into HLG and everything was spot on. And we just didn't understand what we were seeing. So we then conducted some rough and ready subjective tests. Um, and, and we found that the gamma needed to be higher for brighter displays. And then we repeated those um, more formally twice and we got the same relationship. And in fact, NHK in Japan um, did a, a completely different set of experiments and again found that the gamma needed to increase with display brightness. And we all got exactly the same results, which are published as part of the ITUR recommendation BT2100 to describe how the gamma has to increase with brighter displays. And that's the formula shown on the bottom right there. If we look on the left, however, and again, look at our log-log space for log scene light in, log display light out. If we're going to maintain this linear relationship in log-log space between the scene light and the display light, and we've got brighter displays, then the gradient of that line has to be steeper, which actually is what the higher gamma gives you. So if we had thought, it would have been obvious from the start, but, but we didn't. Um, now, okay, so for a, what's important uh, to understand though is that for a scene referred system like HLG, this OOTF is actually part of the display. Um, if we look at the end-to-end -end chain, the linear, the non-linear signal, which is shown in purple in the middle of the screen, um, is actually a representation of the scene light. So if we then go to the display itself, the first part of the display EOTF is the inverse OETF, which undoes, undoes this nonlinear encoding to give us a scene light signal again. And that's then passed into the OOTF within the display itself, which is the right place for it, because actually it's only the display that knows its own brightness and potentially its viewing environment. Um, Worth mentioning that with PQ, it's actually the other way around because the nonlinear signal represents the brightness of the pixel on the display, then that means actually the OOTF is part of the camera chain or grading process. So it then assumes a fixed viewing environment and a fixed display. So that's the critical difference between um, HLG and PQ. Now, if we put those two relationships together for HLG, it means that we've actually got one signal that, that can then target a wide range of different viewing environments and a huge range of different displays. And in the center there, you'll see this value, gamma value of 1.2, and that's the gamma that you use for a reference TV production environment with a five candela per meter squared display surround and a reference display of a thousand candelas per meter squared. And then if you look at the top left of that chart, you'll find a gamma of 1.01. And that's the gamma that you need for a cinema projector in a dark movie environment. And we've shown HLG content graded for TV in dark movie theaters quite a few times now, and it works incredibly well. Um, just a quick word before we wrap up this section on the backwards compatibility of HLG. Um, you're probably aware that the camera OEF, OETF rather, is a combination of a gamma law, which is shown in blue at the bottom of this curve, and a logarithmic law. The gamma law exactly matches that of SDR TV systems and actually is well matched to the human visual system at low light. The logarithmic law extends the dynamic range of the curve. Um, now, if we plot the results of that OETF when feeding a, a consumer um, standard dynamic range TV, which typically has a gamma of 2.2, a display gamma of 2.2, 
we get the red line that you can see in the OOTF chart on the right. And if we compare that against the green line, which is the OOTF just for an SDR, standard dynamic range, camera and display, um, you get the, the, the green line, the straight, straight green line. Apologies for those that are red, green, colorblind. This is not the best choice of colors. Um, but anyhow, you'll see that over the vast range of um, that OOTF curve, the HRG backwards compatible and the SDR OOTFs are the same. And it's just as you reach the highlights, there's a little bit of compression, highlight compression occurring, occurring with HLG, which extends its dynamic range. Um, I have to say the signal is, of course, it requires a BT2020 wide color gamut SDR display to get the best quality image. But you can actually just do a simple color space conversion in a set-top box if you want to feed an SDR709 display, or indeed that sort of conversion could be within the display itself. Okay, so moving on, we're now going to focus on production workflows. So I hope that was clear. I'm happy to take any questions at the end. I know that was quite a rushed run through. Um, and there's in increasing evidence that HLG actually is being adopted for live HDR TV production around the world. And um, there are two clear reasons for that. Um, which both stem out of um, the complexity of live TV production. If you've got a big football match or a tennis tournament, you'll very often have 40 cameras or so, often even more than that, from different manufacturers. And then you'll have specialist cameras, so net cameras, perhaps a tiny camera in the football net, spider cams, which go across, whiz across a football pitch or an athletic stadium, robotic cameras, in the UK, we even have cameras in cricket stumps. So those are the wooden poles that are in the middle of a cricket pitch. And these specialist cameras are going to be standard dynamic range in many instances for years to come. So for a large live event, intermixing standard dynamic range and wide color gamut HDR cameras is going to be inevitable during this transition period. Um, now, if you're going to accurately color match SDR and HDR cameras, you need to do what's called a scene light conversion. You need to calculate the light falling on the camera sensor. And the easiest way to do that is with a scene referred HDR system such as HLG. Um, so that's one reason why HLG is, is doing so well because of this ability to max, match a uh, color match a wide range of different cameras. The other is actually this backwards compatibility that we talked about a moment ago. Um, even though to get the best backwards compatible picture, you, you need a BT2020 SDR display. Um, actually, you get a usable image, even if you put it onto a 709 screen and, and an sRGB PC monitor. And it's, it was stag it's staggering. I was surprised the first time I went into a an OB truck recently, the number of PC screens, sRGB screens that are used just for signal monitoring is huge. And so production teams have actually used that backwards compatibility far more than we would have envisaged. And it's helping them enormously um, being able to use existing infrastructure and existing production equipment uh, for their HDR productions. So those are the two reasons. Now, we were very lucky. Um, throughout 2018 and 2019, um, we were able to participate in a, a, a number of trials, the, kicking off with the Royal Wedding, the wedding between Prince Harry and Meghan Markle in May 2018, closely followed by the FIFA World Cup in 2018, then the Wimbledon Ch Tennis Championships in 2018. Then we participated in the um, the EBU's trial of high frame rate and NGA in Berlin uh, at the European Athletics Championships. Then through 2019, we did three rounds of the FA Cup in the UK and, um, and finally uh, Wimbledon 2019. And through each of those trials, uh, the complexity grew and we built on the learnings from those previous trials. The 
initial trials in 2018 used what's become known as a parallel HDR-SDR production workflow, which is illustrated at a top level on the diagram on the top right here. Um, most HDR cameras for live production have a parallel HDR and SDR output. And those outputs are fed into parallel vision mixers to produce HDR and SDR programs. And the camera is generally controlled by looking at the SDR output from the, uh, from the camera and, and racking it um, by monitoring that output and then hoping that the HDR output will follow. Well, unfortunately, that's often not the case. The HDR and the SDR outputs can, can start to diverge. Sometimes the camera controls for those uh, different outputs have completely different effects on those outputs. Um, it's also, they're very complicated. You effectively need two vision mixers. You need twice as much monitoring equipment. You've got some quite complicated signal workflows that you need to time up. Um, so for HDR production to become commonplace, it's essential that we actually developed a single workflow where the SDR transmission output can be automatically derived from that HDR production. And that's what's illustrated at a top level in the bottom right. Um, and that was enabled, that workflow, first by the Royal Wedding in 2018, where if you were watching um, the, the HD coverage anywhere outside of the UK or indeed on the Sky Satellite prop, uh, platform, you were actually watching a conversion from HLG HDR to SDR BT709. Um, and that gave us great confidence that we could derive a high quality SDR feed from an HDR original. And then at Wimbledon, we had to match, color match a, hard, a wide range of, of different cameras. And that gave us confidence that we could do that effectively with these scene light conversions. So it was through the FA Cup in 2019 that we actually refined this workflow shown in the bottom right. And I'm just going to bring that up on the screen now. I don't have time, sadly, uh, to go through all of the details of this workflow. That's a whole presentation in itself. There are more details available in the ITR report BT2408, and also there's a blog there um, on the BBC R&D website. Um, but just to point out that you've got different square blocks here, pale blue blocks and, and these sort of orangey yellow blocks, and those represent different types of format conversions. The scene light conversions, as they're called, are shown in pale blue, and you use a scene light conversion, whenever you're trying to color match a camera, and then the display light conversions are shown in this sort of yellow ochre color. And you use one of those when you're trying to preserve the displayed look of content between formats. So graphics, as an example, which are generally prepared in standard dynamic range and need to be shown in HDR. You don't want those to change colors. And once you've got your head around exactly what type of conversion to use, scene light, display light, everything else falls into place. And there's lots of help for you there. Um, but also, it's not only us who've used this workflow. It was adopted um, by Fox Sports for their 2020 coverage of the US Super Bowl, which actually was, was great news at a huge, um, a huge event there. Um, now, just to wrap up, the, I think we've, we're all aware that the big streaming services such as Netflix and Amazon Prime um, use PQ. Um, but actually, you may not be aware that amongst TV broadcasters, um, these Venn diagrams from the HDR service tracker prepared by Yuri um, show that HLG actually is the do dominant format for TV broadcasters. Um, so that's good to know, and, and, and more and more are heading in that direction. Um, but what was actually some really surprise news uh, which we were delighted to see in October was the launch of the iPhone 12. And um, we were very excited when we heard it would have HDR video recording using Dolby Vision. But I must admit, I was even more excited when I discovered that that was Dolby Vision built on HLG. So it's HLG um, uh, is, is, the, is the video essence effectively um, when you're recording um, HDR video on the iPhone 12. So that was a nice result there. Um, so 
just to summarize, HOG has been specifically designed to address these issues and the challenges of live TV production. Um, it targets a wide range of domestic viewing environments and it's becoming increasingly um, the format of choice for live HDR TV production and distribution amongst broadcasters. And we focused on live here. Um, I actually skipped over. Um, it's both we, NHK and Sky are using HLG for our on-demand content as well. Um, so with that, um, I will hand back over to Mikhail and thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you, Andrew. So we remove the control. Okay, so I will try to go a bit quickly on the on the answer the lessons from ATEM based on the on the let's say on on what we have been doing with uh, Andrew and Adrian uh, over the time. Something that is quite important for us uh, is really the quality of experience of our end user. So we want to uh, to have the best video quality and the best audio experience. So that's why we uh, believe we are one of the most advanced one, and we uh, we are willing to provide a toolbox to our industry. So not only saying that one is better than another, but uh, really providing the fact that they can have HDR. And that they can have next generation audio on uh, on 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 their TV, on their feed, whatever they, they want to do. But in the end, that would be uh, HDR plus uh, NGA. Something else that is quite also important for us is the interactivity. So that's why we are moving more and more to OTT, and the interactivity that OTT is bringing to the end user is quite important as well with the personalization and so forth. So just confirming what I was saying before, so for uh, so coming from Yuri as well, so the the fact that Atem is supporting all flavor of uh, HDR and bringing that to their uh, end user so that uh, they can select which one, which which one they believe that is better for them and uh, depending on the use cases, then they are uh, lengthy of different use cases where some are better than the other. So coming back to what we did, so like uh, Andrew, we uh, we also did some uh, early uh, tests with HDR, mainly in the Forever and Forever 2 projects. And we were also uh, uh, giving some feedback to BBC at the same time, so that was quite important in this uh, elaboration of this uh, transfer function. So we started in 2016, uh, starting with three uh, dilute converters, uh, because the, the cameras at this time didn't have HLG yet as a firmware. And then we moved to cameras with uh, with HLG inside the camera, and we did that in 2016 and 2018, also with KPN during the World Cup 2018. And then there was another mess at the receiver side, is that uh, we have to deal with HDMI and uh, HDMI 2.0B at this time, of, at, at, at this time, so that was uh, something also that was putting, uh, let's say, more uh, issue at the receiver side at this period of time. Now everything is solved, so we don't have to speak about that anymore. But uh, we were trying on our side as well with early contents um, based on the trials we were doing with uh, Orange. Something that I was thinking that was quite interesting is last year event uh, where we were using HLG for production. And then uh, for the first week, uh, we did the conversion inside Titan to HDR10. That was mandatory for for the service provider that we were using. So that uh, that was a request from uh, France Television to do it in uh, HDR10 on the Eiffel Tower. So for the DVB-T2 and uh, on SDR for uh, Utelsat for their uh, France Sat service. We got two channels for the VBT2, so we also put the SDR709 for the VBT2. And for the second week, uh, the four last days exactly, we use HDR10 uh, for one of the multiplex uh, on uh, on 
still uh, on DVB-T2. And for the other uh, channel, we use HLG. So we pass through what we got from the production. And the conversion between HLG to HDR10, we cannot see the difference in the end uh, on various TVs. So uh, that was more successful than I would say some previous year where we were trying to also to do some uh, some experiments on uh, on our side with uh, let's say the various implementation that we got from various TV vendor. I would say everything now is becoming to be more and more stable. Not spending too much time on the experiments, but uh, there is this one that I think is quite relevant. So it's quite old already, but uh, it's really something that uh, people should look at in, in the end, combining, let's say, various UHD phase two uh, feature into one event. So that's the single event I have seen that. So the production was done in HLG, so in HDR, in 4K but at 100 frames per second. So that's, uh, we got HFR as well for this particular event. And for the audio production, so uh, the idea of, uh, of those people uh, here was also to test audio production. So various uh, NGA technology, so Dolby and, uh, and Franofer, yeah, and also Qualcomm that was pushing uh, HOA, but we were using the, the, uh, the Franofer encoder there. So what we did is that we converted that to HLG in 1080p 100 and we did a multiplex for each of the channel. So we did three different channels, one in MPEG-H 5.1.4 plus 4 dialog, one in AC4 in 5.1.4 plus 4 dialog, and the, le the latest one was done uh, using the MPEG-H-HUA encoder. So I put Qualcomm here, but the, the encoder itself was uh, was the same than the the one from Franofer, so that we were using uh, the same encoder, but just the configuration was different and the playback was different in this particular case. So, Adrian already spoke of this one, uh, so we did that over satellite and T2, so we already spend a lot of time at, uh, at Roland Garros every year. Uh, except last year where we have to do it remotely, but uh, for the rest of the time we are spending a lot of time there so just to experiment and to do a, a lot of trials for our uh, DBBT2 deployments, uh, the future of uh, DBBT2 in France. So here we were experimenting MPEG H3D audio and we use uh, HLG as well for the for the uh, production, but the encoding was done in HDR10 plus uh, uh, dynamic metadata from Technicolor, so SLHDR. And um, we were taking place of uh, Globo TV event last uh, more, more than, than a year right now, a year and a half, uh, where we did the various tests, and that was the premise of what we are doing together with uh, Franofer for the transition from TV 2.0 to TV 3.0. Uh, something that is quite interesting is that they were using AVC as the base layer and ASC as a mandatory, so uh, every set-top box can receive it. And they can enhance that with TV 2.5, with MPEG-H, and just SLHDR on top of H.264 uh, signal. So that was quite uh, different from what we have done from the past. So they use uh, interbase signal to improve it with HDR, so dynamic metadata, and they, they were seeing some improvement on top of uh, of legacy AVC, and they use MPEG audio for uh, enhancing the uh, NGA experience. So we did that over terrestrial, over 5G broadcast, and we experimented that with Dutch and HLS. So this is the, the experimentation that we did together with Titan and various uh, partners here that are listed uh, with Ranofer. And lastly, so that's the thing that we will do this year uh, uh, during the uh, evaluation of TV3.0 together with Ranofer. So uh, um, Adrian already spoke about this one, so I, I won't spend too much time, but that's something that uh, is coming in between what we are doing with ATSC3.0 and what we will be doing for TV3.0, trying to even go beyond what we do uh, already, because uh, there are some uh, various 
test cases that were that are already quite complex to to do with uh, what they are planning to do at uh, in the in this Brazilian forum for TV three dot o. So if you have any questions, so I put back all the audience. So thank you, Adrian. Thank you, Andrew. At least. Ah, well, thank you, the guys, uh, the three of you, for the very interesting session. I mean, we I learned a lot about uh, the various use cases and and how we have deployed that in live production. Uh, I have to notice that we needed a guy from the UK to discuss about cricket. That's and the royal wedding. So that was a good one. Uh, so um, we have many questions. So let me go into the details. So like I was mentioning, um, you, the three of you show various trials, uh, UEFA, athletic, uh, track and field. Um, but some people are asking, actually I have two the questions, so I will try to rephrase. Um, what are the biggest challenges uh, that remain to be solved for live HDR production? Who wants to take that one? Okay, I, I, I guess that one is, is, is targeted at, at, at me. Um, most of the problems have been solved, but the, the hardest thing, and this is really for, for sports, is quick turnaround post-production. Um, and that's something for our FA Cup trial. Uh, all of the post-production was in standard dynamic range. And the, the challenges there are that you have a typically a big file server, a media pool, um, which will have a lot of shared content in it. It'll have live camera feeds being recorded, super slow-mo cameras being recorded there, graphics, and some of that will be in HDR, the live cameras, the super slow-mo cameras may be in SDR, the graphics will be in SDR. And, and so if you're and unfortunately, it's shared. You'll have some people doing stories for web pages and they'll want everything in SDR. You'll have other people wanting to put inserts into the live program, edited packages. And so you need to do some on-the-fly format conversion. And, and that is often quite tricky now. Uh, the systems aren't architected that way. So that's uh, an area that we're going to be looking at. Um, Fox managed it for the Super Bowl. <laughs> but I think that was quite an achievement and that's probably the hardest thing. Thanks. Thank you. Um, another one. Uh, so this one may be for Adrian. Um, so Adrian, during your uh, part, you mentioned the MPEG-H production format uh, used in live production and again, uh, live broadcast. Uh, but a bit back to what Andrew was uh, talking a bit about. What about post-production? Is this compatible to ADM format? Thank you very much. Uh, that's a very good, very good question. So I, I focus today a lot on, on live. And uh, I think that the MPEG-H production format was uh, introduced for, uh, for SDI workflows. So it's focused on live and to, to enable all the use cases today. So when, uh, let's say, when IP workflows will kick in, then there are many other options to, to handle metadata in, in production. And the, the future solution that everybody's converging to is the serialized ADM. But that's more centric on IP. And the MPEG-H production format, this uh, solution to deliver metadata as PCM, actually, inside the, the SDI feed, this uh, enabled the quick deployment of, um, of NGAs, so of MPEG-H audio, with all the features from day zero. But of course, when ADM was developed afterwards, we, we ensured that there is an easy way to go back and forth between ADM metadata and MPEG-H production format. And uh, when, if you produce something in, uh, in, in MPEG-H, you can just store the SDI feed as MPEG-H production format, MPF. Uh, but then you can simply convert that to ADM and store it in your archive in ADM because that's a codec agnostic solution. And that was designed from the beginning for, uh, for archive and storage, especially. And for that, we have actually this authoring suite that I quickly showed, which has these conversion tools that allow you to go back and forth between all the production formats. So you can, you can ingest anything validated, that's a valid ADM, and then export it to, 
to NPEGH and the other way around. Thank you, Adrian. Yet we still have many questions. So please stay with me. Um, so we have five minutes to go. Let's have two more questions. Uh, maybe one for um, Mikael, uh, one each. Uh, so Mikael, let's, let's be the Switzerland here. Um, there are many HDR formats. You, we sh you show the map uh, with all, uh, all flavors. There are also several uh, codecs for immersive audio, but also for video. Uh, what is your take on that? Uh, how do you see the industry evolving? So that, <coughs> that's for sure that we will get uh, PQ and HLG in the end. They are uh, all used in, uh, in the next-gen codec that are already uh, in place. Uh, so the, and, and, and the number of needs that we are looking at, uh, 10,000 needs is quite brilliant. So you have to look at the screen uh, and you will have to, to, to hear some glasses if you are not having just peculars in some places. So I would say that the, the, the number of needs will stay constant and we are not seeing the TV at the moment increasing the number of needs that much compared to, uh, to what it was at the very beginning. So we are in a range in between 700 needs to 2000 needs, but they are not going upper than that. Uh, so, so we will stay with uh, HLG and PQ, and then for those that want to to do a dynamic adaptation of the uh, with external metadata, then that would still happen. I believe they would still be uh, available as well. That's a separate ACI message, so that that's still possible to apply it to whatever the the codec. Uh, on NGA, I would say that. Uh, I would like to see all the technology used uh, that we already have at the moment, and that's something that uh, that we are looking at from from the broadcasters. Uh, so having sixteen channels already is quite uh, is quite high for for most of them. So that's something that uh, we have the tools in place. We can do a lot of things with uh, with the technology that we have for NGA. And uh, if the broadcaster wants to play with it and uh, wants to, to move to it, then we will have really something that is amazing with already those two technologies. The most famous one, I would say. <laughs> uh, an interesting one, uh, slightly different because I'm not sure we have covered that topic. Uh, there have been a couple of trials, but where are we with HFR services? Do you think that they will come maybe with 8K? Who wants to take that one? I, I can start if you want to go, but I think you will have to, to jump into it. So the, the analysis from, from people is that when you move to 8K, you will have to move also to 100 and, or to 120 FPS for sports. So, Either you use a lower resolution and you don't have this artifact that will, will you will have a lot of strobing. So, uh, so it means that for sports, you may have to move to 8K HFR, so to 100 or 120 FPS. But probably the people will take back uh, that into consideration and having 4K HFR might be the, the way to go in the end. So at the moment, we haven't seen people moving to it, but we, we saw a, a big increase in terms of, uh, of points in a, in a scale of 100. It's already 10 points for HD, so it's quite important. And it becomes to be more important when you go to, HK, to 8K. It's less important for 4K, but it's really becoming uh, important for 8K. And if you want to complement my answer. I, just to say, I, I would agree, and, and I was one of the people that was actually pushing quite hard to have HFR included in the DVB toolset, um, and certainly with higher resolutions, um, it becomes very important. I think that the trouble is, and again, I, this isn't my area, so I shouldn't say so much in it about it. Um, it's for a lot of broadcasters. You know, we are investing heavily in 4K, 50 frames per second. And then actually to say, oh, there's this new technology just around the corner, 8K HFR, which is going to, be, it's going to require another big investment, um, which I think is quite a, a barrier right now. 
to, to many broadcasters, but that's not my area. And commercial broadcasters may have a, a, a different view. But this, that's the problem. It's, it's not something we can just switch on. It's going to take a huge amount of investment. Thank you, Andrew. And that's a perfect timing because it's three o'clock. So two o'clock, uh, you home, but that's three o'clock. So thank you, everyone. Thank you, Mikael. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Adrian. <coughs> uh, please stay with us. Uh, there will be a last session with AWS to talk about video in the cloud. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for having us. Bye-bye. Now, we are at the end of the 22nd podcast. If you want to find out more, you can go to the atem.com website or follow us on LinkedIn. Next time, we will cover demystifying the cloud for video processing. Don't miss out. Thank <laughs> you.